I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. We would like to offer our respects to the traditional owners of all generations upon whose lands this podcast has been created. We'd also like to acknowledge any First Nations listeners. It gives me a lot of hope to know that there are things like this which actually exist and reading the other stories. I've been blown away every single time. I spent a lot of my childhood feeling like I wasn't being heard and I wasn't listened to. And I guess it gives me confidence to take more out into the world and to come a bit further out of the shell and out of the little cages. Hello and welcome to The New Writers Room, a podcast for emerging writers. My name is Sarah Malik and I am your host. Today we have the second last episode for the year and it's an exciting one. We chat to some of the winners of this year's SBS Emerging Writers Competition. This year, the third annual SBS Emerging Writers Competition attracted thousands of entries and the best five were chosen by our judges, Alice Pung and Christos Scholtis. In this episode, I have the pleasure of talking to the three winners of the highly commended award. They are Gemma Tamak, Sydney Norris, and all the way from Tasmania, Alexander Burden. Welcome to the show, everyone. Really happy to be here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great to be here. Thanks. So excited to have you all here. I guess I'm going to start with you, Gemma. What was it like when you got the news that you were a winner? I just briefly saw it on my phone when I, when I was just sort of scrolling through and I think I said something like, oh, finally, because (laughs) I'd been trying for a while, you know, I'd been submitting things for a little while and, uh, you know, you, you sort of send it off and then you get a, oh, you know, we had lots of really great submissions, but yours wasn't blah, blah, blah. And then just the first few words told me that, you know, I'd been successful and was like, oh, finally. Oh my gosh. And Sydney, tell us about, you know, where were you and what was your feeling like when you got the big news? I think I was at home at the time. I think I was in the middle of work, uh, working, working remotely. Yeah, it was amazing. It was um, a huge boost of of feeling validated and, and, and grateful and but you know, there's a strange juxtaposition that comes along with it to to celebrate something which, kind of at its core, is is quite upsetting. So it's a balance of emotions on the day, but um, ultimately just so grateful to be seen. And Alex, what was it like for you when you got the news? I mean, it was this sort of strange experience. I was on a bus. I was on a bus heading home after a long day, and. Um, I could definitely say that I got the news at a really good time. I really needed some good news. And so that was wonderful. But uh, also just a little intimidating because, you know, SBS, that's a, that's a household name. And to read this email and being told, and you can't tell anyone. It's just like, I know. Oh, uh, okay. 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 Um, and so I, yeah, a bit of a strange juxtaposition between being like, this is great news. I love this right now. Also, uh, how many people can I sneak in telling before I get in trouble? Oh, definitely. It's all hush-hush and top secret and you feel like a bit of a celebrity. 
<laughs> it must be just an incredible moment and process to go through. And Gemma, you know, your piece, Call and Response, it's about meeting your husband through dance and getting these beautiful, intuitive, spiritual messages on your future. Um, and the judges said of your piece, this story beguiled us. There's a sinewy strength to the writing that is crucial to its beauty and its refusal of sentimentality. It's a lovely, moving and joyous piece of writing. What was that like getting that feedback from Alice Pung and Christos Shokas? I'm crying again hearing you say it because uh, it certainly made me cry the first time. And I think just to pick up on what Alexander said, you know, I felt heard. So, um, you know, that was, was, was wonderful to, to sort of think that my, my writing voice sort of registered with, with other people, which was just fantastic. Really, really emotional. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, um, now that you're emotional, I'm going to get you to read an extract of your beautiful piece. Yeah, sure. My pleasure. My mother often said, never marry a man who can't dance. I feel that this advice would have been easier for me to take if I had not had the six-foot frame of a South Sea Islander. Latinos and those drawn to salsa dancing in Australia tend not to be anywhere near my height. I had previously spent many demoralising nights as a wallflower and I didn't think I could ask a man to dance. Those were the patriarchal rules of the salsa dance floor. And then I danced with Joe. Joe and I are quite a sight on the dance floor. Joe is no triple turn fool. He's five foot six, and he knows how to dance with women taller than him, possibly because most women are. More importantly, he's a funster. There are no rules, only the joy of moving to great music. Oh gosh, that's such a beautiful passage um, about how you met your husband, Joe. Um, it's incredible to me that you almost never entered. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the week before, I'd had two very strange um, and demoralising sort of meetings about my writing, not this piece, but writing more generally. And uh, I had intended to submit something like this to this um, competition. And I took it to my writers group and they started giving me some feedback on it. And they said, oh, where do you want to go with this? And I just burst into tears and said, look, I'm not sure that I ever want to write again. But I took their feedback and then um, and submitted it, you know, two days later and sort of didn't really think much of it because, you know, I was expecting the same sort of wall of silence to, to greet me. So, yeah, it was amazing to, um, to be heard, as, as wow. we were saying before. That's amazing. You know, it's, I think it's a really good point, re-feedback, because has that changed the way you think about receiving and responding to feedback? I don't know that it that it changes. It gives me more confidence to to just keep keep trying. You know, um, there's feedback and there's feedback, really, isn't there? You know, there's people whose feedback you is is useful, and then there's feedback that isn't helpful. The kind of wall you get when you when your feedback is is a rejection is quite different from feedback that you can learn from. And then there's feedback you get from your family and your loved ones, which is always welcome and validating, but it's not the same as, you know, something more, more professional or something that leads, leads you somewhere. But, um, yeah, it did make me think, um, a lot more about who I was asking to see my work and how much I had writing on it and, and maybe not to have too much writing on it because it's going to, you know, resonate with some people and it won't resonate with others and you can't please everybody. 
And can you kind of talk a bit about, you know, what inspired your story and what made you want to tell that particular story? When my son was born, I got postnatal psychosis. So um, I actually spent a lot of time trying to write myself sane in a way or trying to at least use words to help me understand what was happening to me. During that time, I actually started to have this relationship with the, the goddess that, that features in my story. And I wasn't a spiritual person. I still don't consider myself a particularly spiritual person. So I was trying to understand what was going on because um, I'm Catholic and, you know, the goddess is from Cuba, uh, the Cuban goddess from the Santeria religion. And um, I was just trying to make sense of it, but I wanted to do it in a light way because I was really tired of writing and crying. So the lightest way I could do that was to explore it through my relationship with Joe because we met dancing salsa and uh, we met making salsa music. So um, it seemed the most logical way to explore it that way. And now, Sydney, you know, going to your piece, um, mm. you know, your entry looks at, you know, your mum's long-term struggle with psychosis and the rippling effects of her condition. The judges said of your piece, though, you know, this piece about how a young man is affected by his mother's illness is written with such a compelling voice, one that has wry humour and excellent narrative drive. How did that feel to get that feedback on a story that might have been quite difficult to write? It, it was a little bit twofold in that it's hard not to think sometimes that that what is inherently interesting are just the experiences that I went through and not my ability to express them through the written word. So uh, I, I fall into that that trap and that thinking of being like, you're not you're not interesting. What you what you went through is interesting. <laughs> so their recognition of that really helped to like push back against that that notion. And uh, in another part of their feedback, they singled out my candor, and that I don't, I don't know if they realize, but is so much more a compliment to my mental health journey rather than any kind of writing ability. I, I've exhausted and, and survived every emotion on, on this, this journey to here. So it's such a privilege to be able to be candid. Like if I allow myself to truly believe it, confirmation that I'm healing in some way. So for, for them to see that and recognize it, obviously, you know, as, as a writer, I'm so appreciative, but as like a human being, it's even more validating. Sydney, could you read an extract of your piece? That night was an example of how she would often take me places against my will. National parks, cemeteries, prisons, anywhere she thought we needed to be according to whoever was speaking to her that day. Sometimes she wouldn't need to force me at all. I was such a fearful kid that as soon as I heard the particular tone and oral texture of her keys jingling, it triggered some kind of Pavlovian response that compelled me into joining her, especially if I knew that she was taking Teddy with her. Sydney, what was it like for you to write this piece? It's kind of equal parts therapy and, and detective work a little bit. I had this thought the other day of, of this sort of comparative thought of how to describe writing something like that or, or delving into my past in any capacity. And I kind of settled on it's it's kind of like like being at a dig site, like it's like it's paleontology. 
you know, you're like Sam Neill in Jurassic Park, like with the toothbrush down in the <laughs> down in the bones. Cause like, you know, my memory is shot to hell. It's it's classic <laughs> trauma response. So like I have so many isolated memories, these like individual bones that to write is to dig. It's this attempt to like uncover the whole skeleton or in, in a literal way, like the whole truth or the whole not objective truth necessarily, but like the truth of how I felt about something. So it it really was that, and but acknowledging at the same time that danger, just fo- like I'll keep following the dig metaphor because I'm this, I'm this far in, uh, of digging too deep, of totally destroying any anything of, of value I'm trying to dig up and just like going straight through the earth and ending up in a really dark place. So it's, it's always a balance delving into my past in that kind of way between, you know, I'm so desperate to find stability through comprehending what happened. But sometimes is, is, it, is that search worth it if I'm going to just uncover something really, really harmful that, I, that was buried for a reason? Uh, that my brain was like, "Hey, bud, <laughs> we, I did this for you. Let's not just sort of go back there." Gemma, I see you nodding there. Does that resonate with you in terms of your own mental health journey um, that formed the backdrop of this piece? It, it, it resonates a, a lot, and you know, because I was I was looking at it from both your side and from you know trying to imagine your mum's side through the prism of having. Mm a memory of being psychotic and I actually was writing in the acute ward, you know, so I was very aware of what I was thinking and, you know, is this thought real or is that thought real? But um, you said uh, you were thinking about leaving leaving things buried, that it might be better to leave things buried. I guess moving to Alex, you also had to dig deep and excavate some memories for your piece. Your piece was one of my favourites, um, The Lanyard is My Superpower. And, you know, in it you used the lanyard to express the dislocation you felt moving up class levels and kind of lovingly reflecting on, you know, your dad's work as a groundskeeper and your own life now as an academic. And the judges said, the author takes the most prosaic of contemporary objects, the lanyard, and invests it with history and regret aspiration and loss. We judges were deeply moved. What was it like getting that kind of feedback? Oh, oh. well, before I get into all of that, I I would just like to say to Sid and Gemma first that um, I really appreciated in your styles of writing, both of you, how you actually made a clear line of how far you could actually tell your own story to people who weren't there. And I think that's actually super brave to sort of say, my story doesn't have an ending yet. I'm still working things out. Things are still moving. And you won't fully understand this, but this is me. I wrote this thing after I came back from this trip to Europe, the first time I ever left Australia, and had this sort of weird experience of being like, oh, now I know what it's like. This this is being a Tasmanian right now that I need to explain it to uh, people who don't have that background. And it, it made me sort of relive, I suppose, a lot of the experiences that I've been going through the last couple of years to say, oh, so these people who, who talk about fine art and have opinions on wine and know all the words to describe different flavors of wine, these people 
who uh, just enjoy sitting and chatting over coffee and actually do take their laptop to cafes and work there. That's that's like a cool lifestyle. I love it. But I assumed it was only an American thing on TV. But no, they're over at the uni. I think I sort of came to the table with a lot of gripes and confusions about, um, you know, should I be proud of where I came from? Did I really come from it? Am I really working class? And it's all kind of manifested in this weird, dirty piece of plastic and, and rope that I wear around my, my throat, which happens to be a weirdly empowering thing. And going to the lanyard, Alexander, that's a big motif in your story. I was wondering if you could read an extract of your piece for readers to understand what that means in terms of the story you're trying to tell. I'd love to. I'll give it a good crack. Growing up, I don't think any of the men in my family wore a lanyard, and sometimes it was hard to find work. Yet it was the thick, calloused hands that hugged me and lifted me and dropped rissoles and steamed veggies onto my plate. My dad's hands had thin black cracks running through them. They looked and felt like marble. I loved those hands. But if he was a stranger, I think those strong hands would have scared me. So Alexander, can you tell us a bit about your upbringing that inspired that piece? So my parents and siblings are wonderful. My family are lovely human beings. And I'm very lucky to have that. I felt lucky for a lot of my childhood because um, going through the public school system out in the country, going to some of the less prestigious schools, I had people always around me who were going far worse. We weren't exactly luxurious in my house. We had, you know, if there was a brand name on it, chances are that wasn't the groceries we were buying. There was a, a long stretch of time where we couldn't have tropical fish because if we happened to miss a power bill, you know, those fish aren't going to be around. But we had a house, we had food, and my parents always managed to make it work with a few too many children. I can't complain about that. I was one of the few too many. I was the last one. But yeah, having people who always were worse off really put that into perspective for me. I think what it means for the story is not so much about me so much as the people who might read this getting a little jolt to say, I'm a bridge, right? You can go a lot further down that lane of hardship. And uh, if I can help some of those people uh, read something that resonates with them, then then that's brilliant. That's what I want. Going back to your stories, I guess I wanted to ask each of you, you know, what made you want to tell this story? And how did you play with that concept of emergence, which was the competition theme in that story? So I guess I'll start with you, Sydney. In terms of emergence, I always default to writing metaphors and analogies and that sort of thing that pertain to animals and like animal biology. It's just, for me, it's just, it's easy. It's like, okay, cool. What animal could this represent like psychologically, emotionally, that kind of thing? And when I heard emergence, first thing that came to my head was uh, like a butterfly. It's, it's, it felt obvious and it felt straightforward and it's, you know, it was coherent and understandable. And then I just tried to really consider that and really extract from that how it actually applies to me. Like, do I, 
I, I, I don't feel like a butterfly. Like I don't, I, I don't feel like I've had this great big metamorphosis. You know, I, I, I appreciate what Alex said before about mine and Gemma's stories because it's not, there is no real destination. It's, it's ongoing, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an onslaught of, of heartache and happiness and, and everything. So to really consider that, um, the cicada made more sense. I think, I think, you know, I think I heard some like earlier in the day or I was subconsciously just hearing them outside. And, uh, I know that it's cicadas, they, they got to get out of their shell during the summertime. They got to get out. If they don't get out quick enough, the shell hardens around them and they die and that notion of like emergence being so dangerous like really rang true because there's a lot to contend with after the emergence <laughs> after the cicada gets out of the shell kind of thing after i go went through my rehabilitation and, and went through everything it's not fixed it's like oh cool now i'm thinking mostly straight and I'm, 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 you know, able to consider what my actions mean, but I'm also hyper aware of all of these other thoughts I'm having, like all the intrusive thoughts, all the, all the depression and all of everything. Like it was almost easy <laughs> before emerging. Cause it's like you surrender to the, the shit that you're convincing yourself is real. So it just really rang true to me. That notion of the cicada and that notion of come of, of coming out of the shell and, and just having to deal with it. And, and cicada is the title of your piece. And I think that it's really great to know a bit about your thought processes, why you chose that symbol of the cicada and this idea of it must emerge in order to survive. Mm. Was that something that was compelling for you in terms of choosing the cicada as the title? Yeah, big time. Hugely. That was the real, the real like clincher for me. You compare a cocoon to a shell, kind of thing, because the shell, the cicada shell, looks exactly like it. It's, it's, and that's kind of the process of rehabilitating through, you know, these, these, the absolute kind of pits of of mental illness. Is, is, it's you, like it's this version of you that may that is is mostly real and mostly not real, but you really can't tell the difference sometimes whether whether it's <laughs> you or some extraneous force or thoughts that have been implanted based on your journey through the world so so seeing the shell looks identical that's that's that was huge to me that was hugely appropriate i wonder if also writing these pieces allowed these experiences to be more real when you've gone through experiences where you feel like you don't know what's real anymore and Gemma, that's a big theme for your piece as well, call and response. So going back, I guess, to that question of, you know, why did you want to tell this story and what does the concept of emergence mean to you in this story? So I think there were probably three emergences. You know, one, the really obvious one of giving birth and, and a child emerging, which is how it ends. Emerging spirituality was another one. And it was something I felt very shy about because um, – I sort of grew up in an era where it wasn't cool to be religious or, or spiritual or, you know, to say, oh, I'm not religious but I'm spiritual just seemed to be a, a, this crazy cop-out. And the relationship that I developed 
which actually started before any madness came upon me. You know, this relationship with one of the goddesses just was a like a, like a holiday fling, you know, met her on holidays kind of thing and thought, oh, that's really cool and put it like a curio up on my, on my mantelpiece. But then when I was pregnant, I started getting really afraid. You know, I had been afraid of having children because I was afraid of giving birth. And, and so I started talking to one of the goddesses and saying, you know, help me, you know, what, what should I do? And having her talk back and, and that sort of emerging idea that, okay, I can go with that. What do I make of this? What do I make of this otherworldly thing that might also just be my subconscious, my intuition, or is it all of the mothers that have gone before me? Is it the mother spirit? You know, what is this? Why is this goddess talking to me? It didn't make any sense to me. And I was trying to make make sense of, of it and trying really hard to hold on to her even though I was sane mm. because I didn't want it to be a symbol of being mad because it was too lovely. It was too lovely and personal and delightful a relationship. And it's such a joyous story, Gemma, as well. It's, it's so beautifully told and... I um, just adore the story of how you met your husband. (laughs) That is just absolutely beautiful. And, you know, all of your stories do have this kind of surreal, dreamlike quality to them. And, And you all talk about how the writing process was kind of a way of making sense of things as well. Alexander, for you, was writing your story a way of making sense of your world? Um, And, and, yeah, why did you decide to tell this story in particular? I needed to process things emotionally at the time. I'm still going through them of, well, I'm one of the few people who's been given a window to actually do something. And what am I going to use it for? And is it going to be for my family? Is it going to be for people I don't know? Can't I do both? I think I can. So where am I sitting to find that? And I've always sort of been an introvert. So I really resonate with the idea of the cicada Sid. Because I've always been, you know, an invertebrate. I've always had a shell and I've had a crack it open as well. I've had to crawl out of that thing and that's not fun. I was almost mute in primary school. Uh, Not proud of it because there are a lot of cool people I wish I had a conversation with. And whenever there was a family get together, I, you know, had a reputation of being, oh, that's Alex. He doesn't, he doesn't talk. It's it's, it's funny. And it was endearing and it was, you know, well-intentioned, but... (sighs) Oh, brother, I, I got the same reputation. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I guess mm. you did. It's it's this weird thing where you, like, heaven forbid, I mean, I have a window to have a voice. I can't waste that. People, Some people don't get a chance. A voice is the most powerful thing we have. SBS Voices, you named yourself right. Emergence is uh, it's absolutely about speaking into the world because, you know, what you say matters. We're on a podcast right now. You've it's all, all emerged. It's all premised. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've all emerged in a big way. <laughs> and the the weird thing about like the sort of emergence is like exactly what Sid said. I loved it because emergence is cyclical. You know, it's not one and done. It keeps going. And uh, sometimes you end up back where you've already been. And sometimes you're different and sometimes you're not. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just getting a, a hang of not necessarily being emerged so much as being okay with emerging over and over again. It's this case-by-case thing of emerging. I mean, yeah, it it just keeps on going. I bet it's going to be that way for the rest of my life. (laughs) I wanted to ask all of you, what does this win mean for you? It means a lot. 
It means a lot to be heard. I spent a lot of my childhood not feeling like I wasn't being heard and I wasn't listened to. And uh, I guess it gives me confidence and I hope it gives you guys, Alex and Sid, um, confidence to take more out into the world and to, you know, come a bit bit further out of the out of the shell and out of the little cages and add our voices to the world out there and hope that that it lands with with more people. And Sid, you know, what does this win mean for you? Has it been a confidence booster? Yeah, huge confidence booster. Yeah, yeah. It it, it harkens back to what I was saying before of, of you know, it's a nice nice to recognize that there are more interesting things that I'm capable of that I wasn't subjected to. <laughs> that I'm that I'm able to actually create. And Alex for you, you know, what does this win mean for you in terms of, you know, your own confidence as a writer? It's this sort of weird name, isn't it? Sort of being told that you're a winner where I I feel not like I've won. I feel like I've just been given a compliment. You don't like get a compliment and then you're like, "Oh, I won." Yeah, I did it. It it feels so much warmer than that. And it gives me a lot of hope to know that there are things like this which actually exist. And reading the other stories, I'm, I've been blown away every single time. And last question I had for all of you, you know, what is your advice to emerging writers who might be listening on the pod? Gemma? I think there's lots more interest now in diversity of, of voices. Um, and I think Alex has said, we all show that we have very different experiences and that that all of them are valid and worth telling um, if we can find the way in and being truthful. It's easy and difficult, I think, to be to be truthful because, you know, you can write about something real and that can be relatively easy. But to be really truthful about it is where the art or the craft of it lies. There are plenty of avenues to do that and it actually just involves starting writing for yourself, writing to to work something out, to explain something to yourself, write for yourself first. And uh, if it's something that gives you pleasure or gives you closure for something or gives you the impetus to, to do more, then, you know, seek out the way to do that. And I think it's just worth having a go. That's beautiful advice. Have a go. Um, Sid, your advice for emerging writers. I thought it was, it was funny. It was coming off the back, the back of a diversity question. I was like, "Don't worry, I'm here. I'll 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 speak on it as a resident straight white cisgendered man." <laughs> I I think I think not enough people tell men how underrated vulnerability is, and that's really important to me. You know, to to sort of instill that idea that there's and and you know this doesn't just apply to men. That's just you know it's it's where my passion and sort of focus is there's so much strength and empathy to be found in vulnerability and it's a really it's a really difficult place to get to as i mentioned it is such a privilege to be able to be candid about this kind of thing so coming to understand that and embrace that in yourself and in other people i think really opens you up to how rich the world is you know i fall into the same the same sort of mental traps as everyone else but to to really embrace the detail of other people's life 
in all regards, if, if it's cultural, if it's sexual, if it's gender, race, identity, like all of it, it's, uh, you, you just kind of like peel the lid back if you just absorb a little bit of that and, and you, you see the world for like what it really is, which is so much greater and, and so much less closed off. Because if you're, if you're just in you, I mean, if you're someone like me, then, then like there's, there's not a lot of good to be had. There's not a lot of growth to be had if you just stay still. Yes. So, yeah, to, to really involve yourself in other people. Don't don't be weird about it. Like don't don't invite yourself in, but be receptive, and not just on like the you know sort of base level. Someone's talking, you listen. Really try and imagine why they're saying that, um, because there are so many reasons for why they could be saying it like that. And Alex, for you, um, what's your advice for emerging writers? I've loved listening to the two of you speak, Sid and Gemma, and I think maybe what I'm saying is just my own version of what you've articulated, but for me, it boils down to two things, which is one, don't be afraid to be childish, and two, show your work to other people. Like People will tell you that creative arts and self-expression and even just playing games and exploring fun ideas that have no chance of being realistic, whatever that is that's childish. Well, they're probably right, but the problem is they think that's a bad thing. So being willing to be creative is something that's childlike. And if you're going to be embarrassed about that and people are going to try and embarrass you about it, then you're going to be stunted. And that sucks. That's unfair, but it's true. So find your creative outlet or creative outlets. doesn't need to be one. And let that sort of be reflected in your writing. Thank you all for your beautiful insights. Um, I think that's all really good advice. Gemma, have a go. Sydney, be vulnerable and be curious. And Alex, you know, get some feedback, talk to friends, collaborate. I think that's all incredible advice for our emerging writers. And I want to thank you all for being here. Congratulations again. I'm so grateful and um, excited to hear your insights and have you on the pod. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot. It's been great talking to you all. Make sure to tune into our next episode where we talk to the top two winners of the SBS Emerging Writers Competition, winner Tessa Piper and runner-up Monica Elia. If this episode raised any issues for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. For help with perinatal anxiety and depression, call Panda on 1300 726 306. And if you want to read any of our winners' stories, head to the Voices website, sbs.com.au forward slash voices. If you would like to read more stories from Australia's emerging diverse writers, check out the anthology Between Two Worlds, which features the top 30 stories from last year's competition, and Roots, which features stories from the inaugural 2020 competition. They are both published by Hardy Grant and available now. The anthology of this year's top entries will go on sale next year, so keep an eye out for that. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Sarah Malik, and it was edited and mixed by Jeremy Wilmot. Executive producers are Natalie Hambly and Danielle Toich. <laughs>